Hello and welcome to the Fossil Huntress podcast. I hope you guys are all doing really well. Today on the show, I'm going to be sharing the audio from a talk that Joe Moisiak gave earlier today for the VIPS in their 2022 uh, Paleo Talks of Awesome. Joe is a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist with research interests in macroevolution, evolutionary development in biology, and the origin of animal life. He's also interested in looking at arthropods and molting and ontogeny, so how things become and how they grow up. And as part of his continuum of Burgess Shale-related research, he's currently pursuing his PhD, focusing on the earliest evolution of today's most diverse animal group, the arthropods. So he's going to share about radiodonts and anomalocaris and all our sexy Burgess and Cambrian friends and some news and views and insights from this year's, this 2022 field season at the Burgess Shale. So enjoy the talk at the end and in the update. I'll put a link to the video portion of this if you'd like to watch it. But if you'd like to listen to it as a podcast, it is a delightful talk. So join me to hear Joe Moisiak from the Royal Ontario Museum and University of Toronto on the weird and the wonderful lessons from the Cambrian. Lovely introduction, Heidi. I'll just share my slides here. So today I have a fun talk for you guys, which I've called the Weird and the Wonderful Lessons from the Cambrian. So I'm going to be talking about some of the research that I've been doing during my PhD on some of these Burgess Shale fossils. And so uh, in my lab at the ROM in Toronto, we're very interested in this time frame in the Earth's history called the Cambrian Explosion. So this is from about 560 to 520 million years ago. And this is a very important interval in Earth's history because it's during this time that we see the first representatives of essentially all of the major body plans of animals that are still with us today, uh, first appearing in the fossil record. And so we see amazing representatives uh, in all of these fossils that I'm showing here on the right. And we also see evidence of the Cambrian explosion in the genomes of modern animals as well. So there have been a number of really interesting studies in the last few years that have shown that we have these very high rates of evolution in terms of both genes and in terms of the physical form of the organisms. We have these high rates of gene birth and gene duplication and gene losses that are right at these earliest branches in the animal tree of life. And so we think that something very interesting was going on in terms of evolution during this time period, uh, which is why it's attracting so much attention from scientists like myself. And so the group that I focus on for my research is the arthropods. So this group includes all of the animals that have a segmented body and jointed limbs. So things like insects and spiders and crabs and a whole host of other forms that might be less familiar to us. 
Uh, so we think that these animals actually represent about 85% of all animal species on Earth. So this is an absolutely massive and hyper-diverse group, uh, really in terms of any way that you chose to measure diversity. And that makes them a very interesting group to study in terms of the Cambrian, because understanding arthropods is really understanding a big part of what's going on in the Cambrian explosion. And so when we look at uh, the closest living relatives of the arthropods that are still with us today, uh, we, we see these two groups called the tardigrades or water bears and the onycophorans or velvet worms. And so if we're interested in how this hyper-diverse arthropod body plan evolved, we should be really interested in the evolution of all three of these groups. Um, so here I'm calling the, the true arthropods the U-arthropods, so I'll be using that term a little bit throughout this talk as well. Uh, now, unfortunately, we still don't really know how these three major groups of animals are related to each other. There's some debate uh, with some people suggesting that the velvet worms, the onycophorans, are a bit closer to the true arthropods, and others suggesting that the tardigrades are a bit closer to the true arthropods. And different sources of data sort of give us different indications of which of these hypotheses might be better supported. And so this is a bit of a problem in terms of understanding how traits actually evolved across this tree of these early groups, because we don't know the order in which these different types of morphologies branched off. Uh, another problem here is that both the tardigrades and the onycophorans are very, very highly derived groups. So that means they've had a lot of evolutionary changes that have happened along the branches leading to them. So modern onycophorans all live on land and in forests, although we think that their ancestors actually lived in the ocean. And modern tardigrades are all microscopic, although we think that their ancestors were much larger bodied. And so we could question how much these highly derived modern animals can tell us about what was actually going on on these deep, deep branches in the animal tree of life. And so this is really where the fossil record can be very useful to us as evolutionary biologists. So there's this one fossil which is going to be very important for us in thinking about arthropod evolution, which is called Anomalocaris. So this animal was actually discovered over 100 years ago uh, but basically it was found as these different body parts that weren't at first associated with each other. And you can see examples of those on the left. So initially these were thought to belong to like the body of a shrimp, a jellyfish, and a sea cucumber. And it wasn't until 1985 when Harry Whittington and Derek Briggs were re-examining some of the fossil material of this animal and realized that all of these parts actually fit together into this one absolutely bizarre organism, which we now call Anomalocaris. And because it's so weird looking and really uh, resembles nothing that's alive today, Whittington and Briggs uh, suggested in their paper that they did not consider it an arthropod, but a representative of a hitherto unknown phylum. And this is the idea that inspired this famous book by Stephen Jay Gould called Wonderful Life, and for anyone who knows anything about the Burgess Shale, there's a good chance that you've learned about it through this really iconic uh, piece of literature uh, where Gould essentially argued that we have this massive radiation in the Cambrian, this burst of animal diversity of form. And then after the Cambrian period, we have a winnowing out 
of those different forms by extinction. And uh, things have changed a little bit since Gould's days. Uh, and so in particular, today we do actually view Anomalocaris as a close relative of modern arthropods. So it is linked to them evolutionarily by the possession of these jointed frontal appendages on its head. Uh, and so we think Anomalocaris actually branched off uh, from the group leading to the arthropods after the time of divergence of the tardigrades and the onycophorans. And so in this respect, Anomalocaris potentially gives us really key insights into what was going on mm. on that branch leading to the true arthropods and how their body plan actually emerged in the first place. And so uh, once again, just a little bit of terminology for this talk, uh, I'm gonna be referring to the group that includes Anomalocaris and the true arthropods as the arthropods. So arthropod means jointed foot. And so all of these guys are characterized by these jointed appendages on at least one pair of their limbs. And then there's a larger group here, which are called uh, the panarthropods, which also includes the tardigrades and the onycophorans. And so when we look at the fossil record of early panarthropods that we know of today, it turns out that it's not just Anomalocaris anymore. So there have been a ton of discoveries in the past few decades that have revolutionized our understanding of these animals and their diversity uh, in the Cambrian period. And so in some ways, this makes things a little bit more complicated because with all of these diverse forms, how do we now go about reconstructing the actual uh, transitions in terms of the different aspects of form that characterize the body plan of arthropods? And so for my PhD thesis, I focus on this one group of early panarthropods, which are called the radiodons. So this is a large group that includes Anomalocaris, as well as some of these other forms that I'm showing here. And as it turns out, one of the best places in the world to study radiodons is the Burgess Shale in British Columbia. And so this is the site where uh, most of the material that I've worked on comes from. Uh, and we've had the privilege of doing field work there uh, since 2014, which was the first year that I went out at various sites. And the Burgess Shale is a really special fossil site because when we think of fossils, we typically think of things like bones and shells and teeth, the hard parts of organisms that are resistant to decay and tend to be preserved more readily. But at the Burgess Shale, we don't just get hard parts preserving, we also get things like eyes and nervous systems and the guts that sometimes still include the animal's last meals inside. And so all of this builds together to give us this really rich picture of what life was like during the Cambrian period. Uh, the image on the right here is just a nice image from a paper that I like showing uh, the, the top panel showing um, what we know of from the Burgess Shale because of its exceptional quality of preservation. And then the bottom panel showing what we would see if we had a more typical kind of fossil preservation where only the hard parts of the organisms are preserved. And so you can just see the extra richness that we get from this exceptional fossil record at the Burgess Shale. So the Burgess Shale itself has been known for over a hundred years now. It was first discovered close to the town of Field in, um, in Yoho National Park, which is just across the border into BC from Alberta. 
Uh, and so the the first quarry was uh, the Walcott Quarry by Charles Walcott from the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, and just to give you a little bit of the environmental context of the Burgess Shale, uh, it's situated essentially at the edge of this undersea escarpment. And so the animals were living near the base of the escarpment or perhaps on top of the escarpment, and then mudflows swept them off into the basinal part and buried them in these successive layers at the bottom. And so we get these individual snapshots of what life was like moving up throughout this uh, rock formation. Now, at the time, the uh, Burgess Shale was not located high in the Rocky Mountains, of course, but it was at the edge of this continental shelf that was close to the equator. So we're talking about a relatively warm ocean that was teeming with life. Now, one of the exciting developments that's happened since I started working at the ROM in 2012 is that uh, we've had the discovery of these brand new Burgess Shale sites a little bit south of the original site in Kootenai National Park. And as it turns out, these sites have a number of new species that we haven't seen elsewhere at the Burgess Shale before. They include also forms that uh, we knew of from China before, but that are not present at the original Burgess Shale site. Uh, and there's considerable variation in terms of the organisms that were living there within some of the beds in these new sites. Uh, as compared to the older sites. And so we're really getting a sense now that uh, there's a ton of variation in terms of space and in terms of time at the Burgess Shale. And we're really just starting to get a handle on this. But uh, this is very exciting from an, an ecological perspective. And so I'm gonna take you on a little journey to the Burgess Shale, show you about what uh, field work is like for us there. And then I'm going to take you through some of the new discoveries that we've made, focusing on the radiodonts that I work on, before telling you about the implications of these findings for understanding early arthropod evolution. So this is an image of uh, us getting ready to fly up to these Burgess Shale sites. You can see we have all of our gear packed into these big trunks and cans, which keeps them safe. Uh, because we end up lifting these in these massive nets underneath the helicopters. And so this looks like a lot of gear, but when you have a crew of eight to 10 people for sometimes a month or more camping in these remote locations in the mountains, you really need quite a lot of gear. And uh, of course, my supervisor, Jean-Bernard Caron, is French, and so we can't go without having uh, some good quality cheese and uh, excellent chocolates as well. So here's a couple of images of uh, the helicopter. On the left here, you can see one of the long lines about to be hooked up to one of these large hanging nets of gear. And then on the right is an image taken from uh, our small remote landing site on the edge of uh, a cliff uh, where we were this summer. And so once we get up to the site, then the first task is of course to set up the camp. And so here's a couple images of different campsites that we've had. Uh, you can see we typically have a large cook tent in the middle of the camp, which we'll use for uh, making food and for socializing. And then people get their own tents uh, surrounding the main tent. And this is another image of a campsite, a place where we stayed in 2018. Uh, this was a smaller camp that was uh, the, the main goal here was uh, for exploration of a new site. 
And in this case, the area was so steep that the only place we could find to camp was this patch of snow in the bottom of an avalanche gully. So you can see that some of these places that we go to are extremely remote. They're incredibly beautiful places to work. Uh, here's a place that we visited this summer. Uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of this place, here's our campsite down at the bottom. And so you can imagine that the hiking can be pretty brutal, especially when you have to carry a backpack full of rocks. And so once we've got our campsite set up, then the task becomes to uh, move up to where we actually want to do the quarrying, which is usually located at a higher elevation across some pretty rough terrain. And so here are a couple of images of what the quarries look like. Uh, typically on the edges of these rocky cliffy areas. And so the first task here becomes to excavate these areas, uh, particularly in places where we have a suspicion that there could be rich fossil beds, which you can usually identify by looking at the rock types that you can see exposed. So we'll uh, do a lot of digging with hand tools, shovels, picks, and so on. And then once we actually have those rock surfaces exposed, we can start getting into the shale with various power tools uh, using large drills like the one on the left here and uh, wedges and feathers like on the bottom right to try and split out these very large blocks of shale. And from there, the task becomes to split those blocks down as finely as possible. The more finely you split them, the better your chances of finding a fossil. Uh, and if you are lucky enough to find a fossil, then we'll use rock saws, like in the upper right image here, to uh, cut those out without risking breaking them. So here's a couple of images of me finding some fossils this year. And then once we actually extract the fossils and we've got them all packed up in newspaper and inside these metal cans and well protected for their trip back to Toronto, uh, we pack them up with the rest of the gear in these nets which can weigh up to a, a thousand pounds or more. And we uh, haul them back out to our truck and then have them shipped back to uh, the museum. And it's once we're at the museum that a lot of really important discoveries are actually made. Because as you can imagine, these fossils are very small, typically a couple centimeters long. And the details really only show up when you get them under a microscope and get them under the right lighting conditions. And once you do that, the details can be absolutely extraordinary, like some of the examples that you can see here. And so I wanted to highlight some of my fellow researchers who have done a lot of work on these new sites around Marble Canyon, uh, in particular, my supervisor, Jean-Bernard Caron, and also some uh, other student collaborators who have worked on various projects over the years. Uh, that you can see laid out here. And uh, some of these images might be familiar to you because many of them have been uh, in the news in various places. But like I said, today I want to focus on the this one group, the radiodonts, and the new discoveries that we've made in the Marble Canyon area related to this group. And so first I'm going to tell you about this uh, species called Cambroraster falcatus. Uh, it's a brand new species from the Marble Canyon area, which we named in 2019. And uh, initially we had no idea what this animal was because it looked like absolutely nothing that we had seen before. And so we just nicknamed it the spaceship because we thought it looked a little bit like the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. Uh, 
but it, in any case, we, we uh, ended up finding a ton of material of this animal, sometimes dozens of the carapaces of its, from its head uh, covering individual bedding surfaces. Uh, and as time went on, we started noticing these patterns of association of different body parts together. So we started seeing different head plates associated with each other, uh, jointed claws, and some toothy mouth structures. So here's a little zoom in on some of the body parts here. Again, we have this very distinctive carapace on the right here with uh, these large notches in the back and these sort of spiny margins. We have another kind of carapace that sort of looks like a small racket with this narrow neck region at the front. Here's a look at the appendages that we found. So these are these very stout jointed appendages with these long comb-like outgrowths coming from the inside of them. And on these comb-like outgrowths, we have these strongly hooked spines that give this thing a really fierce looking appearance. And then we found the mouth parts of the animal, uh, which we call the oral cone, which looks like this sort of pineapple slice shape with multiple rows of teeth lining the inside of the mouth opening. And on the right here, you can see one specimen that's sort of in a side view where we can actually see some of the tissue from the mouth and throat lined with these teeth. And then finally, we were lucky enough with this animal to find some complete individuals as well. And so this was a particularly spectacular specimen where we can actually see the body. Uh, and what's amazing about the body of this animal is that it's so small relative to the head carapace. So the two reflective structures that you see in the image on the right are actually the eyes. Uh, and then you can see that they're about halfway back on the body. And then we have this very stubby little body that's lined with these pairs of swimming flaps along the side. <laughs> this thing is really like a big swimming head with not much else to it. And so here is a... Uh, a reconstruction that we had done of the animal based on putting all of the pieces together as we understand them. Uh, and you can see an image of uh, a hand on the left there showing you roughly how big the creature is. So this thing gets up to about a foot long, which makes it one of the larger animals from the Cambrian period. Again, this is a time when most animals were smaller than your pinky finger. And Canberra raster, as it turns out, wasn't the only big predator that was living in these environments. We also found an even larger carapace. Now, this is an image of Jean Bernard uh, holding this particularly famous fossil, which appeared on the front cover of Science Magazine. And so we ended up naming this animal Titanocoris gainsi. Uh, the second part of that name is actually in honor of one of our longtime collaborators, Bob Gaines, who you can see on the right here was uh, particularly excited by this discovery. And so this animal seems to be similar to Cambro raster. Uh, we don't have as good a material as we do for Cambro raster, but we do have some evidence of what its frontal claws look like. You can see that in the center images here. Uh, it has these similar stout claws with these spiny comb-like outgrowths. And it also has this characteristic circular oral cone. And this is, a, again, a really large animal. So I'm showing an image on the left here of the carapace of our most complete Titanocoris next to one of the most famous specimens of Anomalocaris, which is itself famed for its large size. So you can see that uh, Titanocoris is really massive. 
this animal probably got up to at least two feet long, and that definitely makes it one of the largest predators that we know of from the Cambrian times. And so here's a, another reconstruction of what we think uh, Cambro raster and titanocories looked like in their environment at Marble Canyon. Okay, so the final species that I want to introduce to you today is another one called the uh, Stanley Caris herpex. So this animal was initially described by my supervisor in 2010. And at that time, all we knew about were, was uh, this unique looking appendage, which has this really a multi-tool-like appearance with many different kinds of spines projecting off it. So we actually did a restudy of this material last year uh, and uh, we're better able to um, describe how complex this feeding structure really is. So we have, uh, like in Cambro raster and titanocories, these rake-like spines coming from the inside of the appendage, but we also have these hooked outer spines and then these very unique trident-shaped spines that sort of project towards the midline of the animal. Here's a couple of other images, the left one showing a pair of the claws in sort of a weird frontal orientation, as well as this characteristic uh, mouth part, the oral cone. And then the one on the right here showing, and again, another one of these oral cones where you can see some of the uh, teeth of this animal. And so we were able to reconstruct the appendages and the mouth parts in quite nice detail. Uh, but at this time, we still didn't know what the rest of the animal looked like. And so just this summer, we actually published a new study where we described the first complete specimens of Stanley Caris. And this was really exciting because as it turns out, the specimens were under our noses the whole time. They were actually collected in the 80s and 90s and they remained unstudied in the ROMS collections uh, and their identity was unrecognized until we took a closer look. Uh, and we realized that we were actually dealing with the same animal as we had found uh, the claws of previously at other sites. And so this data set was really amazing to work on. We had about 260 specimens of this animal, which is a huge number for these otherwise rare organisms. Uh, and they're also incredibly well-preserved. So they give us some unique insights into this group of animals, the radiodonts. So just to go over the general form of this animal, we have a head, our trunk region, which is composed of multiple segments. And then at the back end, we have these filamentous blades that make up this sort of tail structure. If we zoom in on the head of this particular specimens, you can see some incredible details like the frontal appendages, those circular mouth parts that make up the oral cone, these beautiful large uh, eyes, internal organs like the gut, and even the brain preserved in this particular specimen. Here's another specimen showing some other features. And one of the most remarkable is this huge dark structure near the top, which I've labeled the median eye. So it turns out that Stanley Harris actually has three eyes, two on the sides on a pair of stalks and a third one sitting on the front of its head. Uh, and again, we see beautiful details of the brain in the specimen as well, which is pretty remarkable after 500 million years. A couple of other specimens here, this time showing more of a side view of the animal where we can really readily see some of the 
segmental boundaries that uh, compose the trunk region and these large swimming flaps that line the side of the animal's body. And so again, we were able to come up with a really beautiful reconstruction of this animal, uh, not only in terms of its external form, but also its internal anatomy, including uh, its gut, its brain, its nerve cords, and its eyes. And so this kind of detail is really unprecedented for a radiodont. So again, we have these three species from the uh, Marble Canyon area. Canberra raster, Titanocoris, and Stanley Karras. And so now I wanna talk a little bit about what these discoveries actually tell us about these animals and their evolution. So first of all, I wanna think a little bit about the feeding modes. How are these animals actually feeding and what roles did they play in their environments? So when we look at the fossil record of radiodonts from all of the different sites that they're known from, we actually see this pretty amazing diversity of different frontal appendages. And we think these frontal appendages were really key for feeding in these animals because they have a lot of adaptations that we associate with feeding, like these big spines that can be variously modified for uh, different functions. And so just by comparing some of these appendages of different radiodonts with various modern arthropod relatives, and we can come up with some hypotheses about how they might have been feeding. So in the top middle image here, I'm showing a picture of Anomalocaris's claw. And this is quite comparable to the claws that we see in some modern arachnids or spider relatives. We also see some claws like this uh, middle image here of um, an animal called Tamisiocaris, which looks a lot like the feeding appendages of modern filter feeders like krill. And then we see in the bottom middle image, this pincer-like claw of a radiodont called Amplectobalua, which looks a lot like the pincers that we see in lots of different groups of modern arthropods, like uh, the uh, spider relative that I'm showing in the bottom right image here. So modern ecology and modern uh, functional morphology gives us a lot of clues about how these animals might have been living so long ago. Now, when it comes to animals like Canberra raster, the story is a little bit more difficult because we have fewer good modern analogs for this type of appendage. This really is a unique sort of structure. Uh, however, if we really do some sleuthing around, we can find some comb or rake-like appendages that might be comparable in some modern um, lobster relatives and also some fossil groups like uh, certain sea scorpions and uh, certain other lobster relatives. And in general, these sorts of comb or rake-like appendages are thought to function by raking through the sediment in search of buried prey items. And so we suspect that Canberra raster and Titanocoris were probably doing something similar with their rake-like appendages and were feeding on buried organisms in the sediment. And this also jives well with what we understand about their overall body shape. So one of the really remarkable aspects of uh, Canberra raster that I mentioned was this absolutely huge head with the eyes positioned quite far back along the body and sort of facing upwards. And this general sort of form is something that we also see in a lot of modern bottom dwellers like horseshoe crabs and even true crabs, uh, plus of various different fossil groups like certain trilobites and even some jawless fish. 
And so all of this seems to match with the idea that Cambro Raster and its relative Titanochoris were probably living close to the bottom and feeding on uh, buried prey. Now, Stanley Karras is really interesting to me because it also has these rake-like outgrowths on its claws. But in addition, it has those really interesting uh, medially directed spines that are shaped like tridents. And so when we take a look at these uh, claws and compare them to modern forms, we see a really close similarity to the mandibles of some modern crustaceans, like the copepod crustacean that I'm showing in the far right image here. And so we think that Stanley Karras was using its claws like a set of jaws to crush and shred prey items before bringing them into its mouth, just like a pair of mandibles in a modern crustacean. And another kind of neat thing here is that uh, we actually see some variations uh, in the fossil record between Stanley Karras, uh, which I'm showing in the top left two images here, uh, and another species which actually has yet to be described that I'm showing in the bottom left two images. So you can see that the new animal has much stubbier, stouter spines. And uh, in modern crustaceans, these sorts of stubby spines tend to be associated with shell crushing, whereas longer, thinner, more fragile spines tend to be associated with predation on soft-bodied organisms. And so overall, we're getting this picture that these different radiodon species were exhibiting these very diverse different kinds of feeding modes, uh, even within the Burgess Shale environment itself. And we're sort of partitioning out what kinds of things that they were feeding on. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about um, the different body plans that we see in the radiodon group. So generally, when you look at their overall form, we can kind of divide them up into these two major groups. One I'll call the Herdiids, which you see an example of uh, is Canberra raster, shown on the left. And another one that I'll call the non-Herdiids, uh, which Anomalocaris is a good example of. So uh, they're characterized by these quite different appearances. Canberra raster has this huge head and these sort of rake-like appendages, while Anomalocaris has this much more streamlined body with the frontally positioned eyes and these long grasping jointed appendages. And so I was really interested in how these groups might have become so differentiated from each other and in trying to reconstruct what the ancestral radiodont might have looked like. This is important because, as I showed you at the beginning of the talk, uh, the radiodonts sit on that stem group to the true arthropods. And so understanding what their ancestor looked like can tell us a little bit about what the arthropod ancestor might have looked like. And so here's a simplified tree of the uh, the radiodont groups that I talked about, so the herdiids and the non-herdiids. And if we just map out some of their different forms over this tree, we can start to come up with some ideas about what their ancestral form might have looked like. And so uh, we see that uh, Stanley Karras plays this key role in terms of understanding the evolution of the jointed frontal appendages of this group, because it's kind of um, intermediate between what we see in Anomalocaris, this much longer claw, with what we see in Cambroraster, these very short and stout claws with very elaborate rake-like outgrowths. And so based on this, if we kind of map these morphologies back to the base of our tree, we can come up with the hypothesis that the ancestral radiodont claw was probably fairly elongate uh, and useful for grasping rapidly moving prey. 
if we map out the different uh, body morphologies across our tree, we can see uh, again the major differences here. Um, and again, Stanley Karras seems to play this critical role in, as a sort of intermediate between the very unique morphology of things like Camper raster uh, and uh, these more streamlined forms like Anomalocaris. And so if we were to reconstruct the ancestor of all radiodonts, we can now make the inference that it probably had a, a much more streamlined body with a relatively short head. So now thinking more broadly outside of the radiodonts, there's been this big problem in terms of understanding fossil arthropods, which is the composition of their heads. So people are very interested in how the different head segments and their respective appendages sort of lined up across different groups of fossils and how that compares to modern groups. This is very important for uh, trying to build evolutionary trees because we need to understand which structures are actually the equivalents of each other and what, which represent a transformation series uh, from a common ancestral form. And so there have been two main hypotheses in terms of radiodont segmental alignment. One of them, which I've labeled one here, has the frontal jointed claws of the radiodonts sitting on the first head segment, whereas the second hypothesis has them sitting on the second head segment. Uh, and the hypothesis one here has been notably uh, supported by a very influential paper that came out in 2014 based on some uh, partially preserved material from uh, a site in China called the Qingzhang biota. But we actually found some better preserved material of Stanley Karras showing uh, its brain morphology, as I mentioned. And so this brain morphology turns out to be critical for answering this question about the segmental alignment of uh, the radiodont head with other groups of arthropods. And so the key features that I want you to take away here are the things that I've colored in red here and in yellow. So we have different parts of the brain, which we think belong to different brain segments, the protocerebrum or the first brain segment and the deuterocerebrum or the second brain segment. And as it turns out, we find some evidence that the uh, nerves that actually innervate the frontal appendages in Stanley Karras come from uh, a position that's underneath the first brain segment. And so they seem to be connecting to the second brain segment you can see a little image of a close-up of that frontal appendage nerve here. And so again, if we reconstruct those two hypotheses that I talked about, number one and number two, we can now reject the first hypothesis because we can actually see that the frontal appendages of radiodons are connected to the second brain segment, and therefore they belong to the second head segment. And so this has some interesting implications when we think about the larger scale evolution of all of these different panarthropod groups. So the modern true arthropods all have a three-segmented brain. The radiodonts, as I mentioned, seem to have a two-segmented brain. And this is actually a trait that's shared with the modern onychophorans or velvet worms. And so this may actually indicate that the onychophorans are the closer relatives to the true arthropods as opposed to the tardigrades. Um, this is actually more in line with the sort of results that have been 
gotten from most analyses of uh, genetic variation, but it's in contrast to a lot of previous analyses based on the morphology alone. And so this is uh, an interesting finding because now we're showing that um, morphology and molecular findings are starting to converge on this result of onycophorans being closer to the, the, uh, the true arthropods. So then the last topic that I wanted to cover was the distribution of radiodonts and what we've learned about that in the last few years. And so since we published the descriptions of Camber raster and titanocoris, I've been really excited to see some other studies popping up from other parts of the world showing rather similar looking animals were living uh, quite far across the globe. Uh, so you can see a couple of different studies from different parts of China that actually belong to different paleo continents. And there's actually some unpublished material from uh, Utah as well. So it looks like this, these animals were not only um, important at the Burgess Shale, but were also a globally distributed group. Uh, in terms of Stanley Harris, there have been uh, some isolated findings in Utah. So far, nothing has been found outside of uh, Paleo North America. And so this species seems to be more endemic to the Burgess Shale and, and vicinity, but uh, who knows what further discoveries may turn up in other parts of the world as people start looking. So just to finish off my talk here, I think what you can take away is that we went from viewing radiodonts as this perplexing group of weird wonders that were almost inscrutable to viewing them as this very diverse group of animals that have very different kinds of uh, ecologies. They have uh, different distributions around the world. They uh, have very different body plans and they are helping us to inform uh, the evolution of the arthropods as a whole. And so really we can view this group as a sort of ideal model for understanding the evolution of arthropods, almost the same way that uh, dinosaurs help us understand the evolution of birds. And then finally, on a personal note, I think it's been uh, really a pleasure to see that our research has also inspired people in the public. Uh, a lot of really nice artworks have been created uh, that are based on some of the fossil finds that we made. And so it's been uh, super nice to see how excited people are getting about these invertebrates for a change and uh, learning that, that paleontology is about more than just dinosaurs. And so if you like the this sort of research on the early evolution of animal life, uh, I really recommend you come and see the Wilner Madge Gallery of the Dawn of Life, which has just opened up at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto uh, as of December. It's a very beautiful gallery to look at with lots of artworks, animations, and uh, all kinds of interactive things. And uh, we're getting a lot of really positive feedback about it. And the good news is that it's a permanent gallery, so it should be around for a number of years to come. So there's really no rush to come and see it, but it's definitely worth the trip. And with that, I uh, have many people to thank, including collaborators and various people who have helped with providing imagery and artwork and also just uh, general advice and support over the years. Thank you very much for listening and uh, you can ask any questions you may have. Thank you, Joe. That was an amazing talk. Um...
for anybody joining us now, just to let you know that uh, this talk is being recorded and behind the mountain party hunting and fossil hunters. Joe, that was wonderful to see your field work, and it was also wonderful to see uh, the lengths you go to to get into the field. I was wondering about those loads, a thousand, a thousand pound loads. Is it is it a air ambulance or a bell or what are you flying in on? Uh, they do have the larger air ambulances, but uh, the ones that they take us in are usually the smaller helicopters that they have, which are um, six seaters. Okay. I think they're six seaters. Um, so they're, they're pretty lightweight, but they can carry a lot of load. This was good. And I was looking at your Cambro raster and yes, Millennium Falcon, but I first saw a flower <laughs> and then I saw a Devonian fish. I'm like, what an interesting <laughs> little creature. So uh, um, your, your insights on the radio dance uh, are outstanding and we just go deeper and deeper and, and a little wider. So China's open to things up. I wanted to open it up to questions. Dan, I see you've got a question, so. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Joe. That was an excellent presentation. Well done. A lot of uh, hard research in there and lots of fun on your field trips, I can imagine. Um, what I really enjoyed was the evolutionary side of of this, when you look at some of those species and you see that you've actually see, picked out the brain, for example, um, the eyes, the location of the eyes, the mouth. Um, these are uh, things that tell us that these uh, species were fairly advanced as far as being able to move around, they're predators, um, and uh, very, mu very much like today. So. That was really quite a um, interesting to to take away from this. And the first question comes up for me is uh, the step back one more uh, level. How these uh, you know Cambrian species actually advanced? So it must have been some precursor to all this. What can you uh, add to that? Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I only alluded to some of the other groups at the beginning of the talk with the one slide showing that huge diversity of different forms. Uh, but basically, we think that all of the uh, modern panarthropods, so the, the true arthropods, the onycophorans, and the tardigrades, all emerged from this group of animals that we call the lobopodians. And so these are basically worms with legs. Um, they have these long bodies with a series of uh, unjointed soft legs along them, which can be variously differentiated for, for different functions. And they typically have a pair of small, simple eyes at the front of the head. And they also have these um, round mouth parts with various teeth, a little bit like the radiodonts have. Um, there are still some things that we don't understand about the transition between this lobopodian group and, uh, and the, the radiodonts. But what we do know comes uh, largely from uh, a site in Greenland called Sirius Passet, which is similar to the Burgess Shale, but uh, a little bit older. And so there we find some animals that look a little bit like uh, radiodonts, but instead of having the jointed appendages at the front, their large um, predatory appendages are soft and flexible, like the lobocotus appendages of some of these more worm-like ancestral forms. So we're starting to build up a little bit of a picture of, of the, how that transition happened between essentially uh, what were originally worms 
and arthropods, but there's still some pieces in there that are missing. Interesting story. And yes, and they get to a place of um, mouth appendages that are quite terrifying. If you scale that out, <laughs> these, are, these are horrifying predators, wonderfully, wonderfully diverse, horrifying predators. I was also uh, I'm looking at Stanley Karras and I hadn't realized how linchpin that species was in the tail of, of all of this evolution. Um, so very yes, interesting yes. To, to hear more about that. Stanley Terrace was a very uh, exciting find for us because it essentially fit a prediction that I had made earlier about finding um, a potential intermediate form between the Herdiads and the non-Herdiads. And at the time we, we knew about these specimens of Stanley Terrace, but we hadn't actually realized what they were. We hadn't noticed some of the more Herdiad-like characteristics of them. So initially I thought they were actually juvenile specimens of Anomalocaris itself. And it was only when we looked closer that we saw that they were almost this perfect chimera that we couldn't have asked better. Well, you predicted it and it turned out to be true. Um, Any last questions for, for Joe on the uh, his new discoveries or understanding early arthropod evolution? Andrew, Nathan, Karen? No, you're all good? Oh, I might have one more question. Okay. Remember back in the day when Dr. Ralph Ludwigson was uh, doing some lectures on Burgess Shale material, he, there was always this controversy about the, uh, the, uh, how the soft-bodied um, species were preserved. Uh, was it an outflowing um, type of, from a kind of a continental shelf? Uh, or was it an extreme event that buried uh, all the, the species under um, muddy debris or whatever? Um, and I, I see you mentioned uh, a little bit about that. Maybe you can uh, go explain that a little bit better. Thanks. Yeah, so part of the controversy uh, has been the nature of the outcrop that's at the original Burgess Shale site, the Walcott Quarry, which is on Fossil Ridge. And so there you find this structure that has been interpreted as uh, an undersea escarpment, which we call the cathedral escarpment. It's like this vertical um, division in the rock where on one side you see this limestone uh, that merges in with the underlying formation in the basin. And then on the other side of it, you see um, uh, the shales of the Burgess Shale itself. So the idea uh, that some people put forward was that um, you know, you have this underwater cliff, basically, where the animals were living adjacent to, and then mudslides swept the animals into the basin and sort of across the um, the um, oxygen gradient into an area with lower oxygen where this sort of exceptional preservation could occur. So that's a really nice model. But then uh, some people like Ralph Ludwigsen, I believe, had uh, some issues with the model because they found some evidence that this vertical scarp that you observe on Fossil Ridge might actually just be a fault boundary between the uh, two sides as opposed to being a genuine uh, structure that was, uh, you know, as deposited in the Cambrian period. Uh, so I was actually talking to one of our collaborators, Bob Gaines, who uh, Titana Cori's is named after. And so he's been working with us on the uh, uh, aspects of the stratigraphy at the Burgess Shale. And so, um, uh, one of the goals that we had this summer was actually going to a couple of sites to try and find other examples of this 
um, cathedral escarpment on other mountains to check whether this really might be a, a legitimate uh, feature of the basin at that time or whether it just represents a, like a fault scarp basically. Um, and so I think what, what Bob seems pretty convinced about right now is that the cathedral escarpment is real, but the outcrop on Fossil Ridge is faulted. <laughs> so actually we can see the cathedral escarpment in other places. Uh, it may not be as vertical as it appeared to be on Fossil Ridge because it's actually been partially uh, shifted and faulted along that line. But there does seem to be a big uh, break in the slope at the edge of the Bridges Shale uh, regions where the most of the fossil occurs. Yeah, definitely not straightforward, <laughs> really <laughs> complex. Still lots of work to be done. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. So Jill, back from the field and, uh, and thank you for a stellar talk. So as you continue your um, Burgess Shale related research, what's next? So Casey, did you uh, plan to publish put it to the public domain next? Whoops, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch all of that. Ah, cut out a little bit. No worries, sorry, that's my uh, that's my Wi-Fi. So I'm fresh from the field and and going now back to the ROM. What are the next papers and, and pieces that you want to sort of delve deeper? So we've got the bigger picture, but um, what should we look for next from you? Well, we have uh, some more research to come on Stanley Karras, actually, uh, which includes some evidence that we found that this animal was molting its exoskeleton and a little bit more uh, data on how it was actually developing from a juvenile to an adult. And that's something that I'm working on submitting right now. So you can expect to see that soon, hopefully. Uh, there's also uh, a few other new species that remain to be described from the Marble Canyon area. Uh, so you can expect to see those hopefully in the next few years. Uh, and then uh, I'm also interested in some broader macroevolutionary questions relating to the radiation of uh, the arthropods in general in the Cambrian period and what sort of factors were driving that. And so that's also on, on deck for me. So. Hopefully I'll be able to give a talk about that at some point in the future. We welcome you back in the spring and we're going to need to replicate you because what you've just described are PhD theses for a, for a half dozen individuals. So <laughs> and they, they might, some of them might well become PhD theses for others as well. <laughs> well, that's good one. Um, everyone I'm sure will join me in, in thanking uh, Joe Moisiak for a wonderful talk. Fantastic. Evolutionary yeah. biologist, yeah. and we look forward to seeing many, many more wonderful publications of work. So sorry, Karen, to cut you off there. That's it. I was just giving praise. That was wonderful. Just pure joy, the, the entire talk. Thanks so much. Thanks for the invitation. And thanks to everyone for joining. We'll talk to you very soon. And I'll put a link to this talk on Fossil Talks and Field on Joe's page where we've poached photos, but uh, now have gained permission. Uh, anyway, thank you. That was amazing, Joe. Thank you so much. Take yep. care. Bye-bye yep. now. Thanks so much, Joe. Take care. Take care.
So I hope you enjoyed that talk with Joe Moziak and we learned a thing or two about our beautiful radio dance. If you'd like to read more about Stanley Karras, the most complete known radio dance and which alters our understanding of early arthropod evolution, I will pop a link to the article that Joe and team published last July in Current Biology on the Fossil Talks and Field Trip page. And I will talk to you guys very soon. Thanks for joining us.